welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. And pumped up this morning. We've got some good things happening. We're going to be in the 23rd Psalm if you'd like to turn there. Now, I know that many of you are travelers. Have any of you guys ever been to the desert? Anybody? A few of us? Okay. The desert, like, I, I love the desert. It has this unique beauty to it. I, I think that there's something beautiful in the desolation. When I went to Mexico, when Jessica and I went to Mexico, I remember this moment of driving through the desert of southwest Texas and just thinking, God can make something out of nothing. But it's beautiful to us because it's different than us. We've never seen something quite like that. If you spend a lot of time in the desert, you realize that you're really surrounded by, like, this desolation and death. See, in the desert there is no water and nothing on earth lives without water so when you travel through the desert that's what you see is a lot of nothing now for us with a car in modern day times going through the desert it's not that big of a deal we've got our big drink from the gas station beside us we'll turn the air conditioner on and we'll get through it but long ago when people had to ride through the desert or walk through the desert it could be a little bit more dangerous and thankful they were for something called an oasis do you guys know what an oasis is yeah it's it's a it's a out in the middle of this desert surrounded by nothing but brown and dead everything. In the desert, there are these little places where God has placed a stream or where the very few rains will actually gather enough water that will stay there. And in this oasis, there will be animals, there will be water, there will be life, there will be trees and vegetation. Just in the middle of the desert, this one little green spot that God just plopped down there. Well, you know what? When you're in the oasis, you wouldn't even know that you're in a desert. Though you're surrounded by the death and desolation of the desert, in the oasis, everything you need is provided for you. As a matter of fact, the earliest trade routes across the desert, like the Silk Road, they actually zigged and zagged across the desert because they took a direct line from one oasis to another as it provided a place of rest and refuge from the horrors of the world around it. Let me ask you a question. When the world around you is full of death and desolation, when we walk through the shadows and when we're surrounded by our enemies, where do you find your oasis? Where do you find your refuge? There's a man in the Bible, his name is David, we've been learning about him the past several weeks, or we've been learning about some of his writings the past several weeks, and, and David, the king of Israel, he always found his refuge, and he found himself in an oasis when he went to God. See, David lived a lifestyle of worship, not, not just the fact that he sang when it was time to sing at church, he lived a lifestyle of worship where he continually found rest and peace in God. We're defining this week, we're defining um, worship as an act that exalts God. God and minimizes everything else. And in the act of worship, we will find this oasis. We see an example of this in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the most prolific song ever written worshiping God. I really believe that. For thousands of years, people have found comfort in the 23rd Psalm in the darkest parts of their life. Now, what makes Psalm 23 is not that it just worships God. It's not that it just focuses on God. It focuses on God in the midst of the shadows and in the midst of the hard times. Psalm 23 describes to us our oasis that we have in God, being able to run to Him when the problems come at us. I would think that this year we've had a lot of shadows, haven't we? In the world with coronavirus, each of us has our own personal shadows that maybe we don't talk about, but there's something that just seems to nip at us and nag at us all of the time. 
But in those shadows, I've got good news for you. There's an oasis for your soul. And the problem with you and I is sometimes that we forget to go to the oasis. We allow ourselves to be surrounded by the death and despair but we forget that we can go to God, that we can worship and we can find this oasis. And that's what David has found in the 23rd Psalm. If you've got your Bibles with me, let's read this out loud together. We're going to focus on verses 5 and 6, but we're going to read the whole thing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they come from me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The last two weeks we've been studying this psalm and we find it very interesting some of the things that, that David put in here. I really believe the most important word in this entire psalm is in the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. Where David tells us that everything he's about to talk about with God is because he has a close, personal, emotional relation, connection with the creator of the universe. And so we start out remembering that we have that same connection with God. And then last week we were introduced to the shadow. We kind of remember what it looked like like it's in this valley surrounded by mountains we're walking through the, uh, the valley of the shadow of death and we're trapped it's dark all the trees are dead I always picture buzzards circling around our heads and as we walk through this dark point David says but it's okay it's, it's, it's almost like he doesn't understand where he's at I'm not scared I fear no evil and he tells us this is because the shepherd is with him and so that's where we were last week and now this week we're going to look at what does the shepherd do for us when we are surrounded by the shadow. Our first take home truth is this. In worship, I look away from my surroundings and find refuge. In worship, I look away from my surround surroundings and find refuge. When there are problems in our life, we tend to focus on them. I don't know about you guys. I come from a family of like worriers. We, we just like mull stuff over in our lives all the time. But here's, here's the bad thing that could happen and then we will usually blow it out of proportion. Like something small bad happens and then it's going to be 900 times worse by the time I get done figuring out how bad it is. And what we tend to do is when we walk through a shadow is we tend to focus on the shadow. But what David says here is, I'm going to focus on what God puts in front of me. I'm not going to focus on what surrounds me. I'm going to focus on what God puts in front of me. And David says here in the psalm, he says, you prepare a table before me. And it's very basic Heart. That's what worship is. is. It's a decision to focus on what God puts before us and not what surrounds us. So David says, I focus on this table that God is preparing for me. I love the fact that God is preparing a table here. David is describing to, uh, to us a journey that he's on. He's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's got to be a very taxing trip. He doesn't say, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't say, I took a break here. He says, I'm walking through it. And every time you walk through something, it's going to take a toll on you. When I was about 19, my dad, um, he, he's a big outdoorsman, and he had this idea. He said, we're going to go backpacking. Any of you guys ever done backpacking? If you don't know anything about backpacking, that is proof that God loves you. It is the most horrible form of recreation anybody could ever come up with. The idea is that you, you pick a trail that you want to travel on, and you 
put on this big backpack with everything you're going to need in it, and you go across these mountains, up and down these valleys, by the rivers and cross it, and you're just going to live off the wilderness for several weeks. Now, some of you are in the military, and you're like, Brian, that was Tuesday morning. Well, for me, it was a big deal. And when I was 19, he came up to me, and he said, I want to go backpacking. And I said, okay. And as we were traveling to the area, he picked me up after college. He told us what we were going to do. He said, Brian, we got 32 miles to do this weekend. And I said, Dad, that's a little much. Oh, no, we can do it. We're tough. We're not tough. And he said, we can do it. And um, our packs weighed 40 pounds apiece, and we had to travel this huge up and down mountains. We had to sleep on the ground. It was absolutely horrible. And what I remember from that trip is I don't remember the beautiful views. I don't remember the elk that we saw. I don't remember enjoying a single moment of it. I remember thinking about, if we get out of this alive, I'm going to kill my dad because this is horrible. But at the end of it, I was so tired. When I remember returning, he returned me to college. My legs hurt. My back hurt. I fell a couple of times. I had a caffeine headache. I didn't have enough Dr. Pepper on the trip. And, and I just remember being so tired. And all I could think about is, as soon as I get him out of my hair, I'm getting in my truck and I'm going to go find the biggest hamburger in the city of Russellville. Now, what David tells us in this what he tells us in this is that on this taxing trip when he's tired and his legs hurt and he just can't take any more and he's weary, he says, my God is providing me a meal. My God is providing me something that is going to bring me new strength. And so David chooses not to look at his surroundings. He chooses to look at what God puts before him. Now, if you notice what it says here is that God prepares a table before me. God is preparing a table. Thanksgiving is a day when we have that big meal, right? And I never really understood Thanksgiving. Like, we're going to spend all day getting together with the family members, the ones that we like and the ones that we tolerate. We're going to have them put together. I'm not talking about you, Denise. I don't, you're not my family. <laughs> we're going to put all day getting together and getting ready for everything. And then we're all going to sit around the table and we're going to eat so much food that we feel like we're going to puke. And then we're going to sit around in the living room. You know, it's inappropriate, but we're going to unbutton our pants because we had so much food and we're going to gripe about we had too much food. Why do we do that every year? You'd think we would learn, you know, eat less on Thanksgiving. But here's what I know about Thanksgiving is that that meal doesn't just appear on the table. I know people that for weeks ahead of time, they're spending time planning and preparing the meal. Here's what I'm going to cook. I've got to go to the grocery store. I've got to buy the new decorations for the table. It takes a lot of foresight and effort to prepare a meal for someone. And David says here that God is preparing a table before me. What that tells me about God is that in our journey, in our struggle, in the shadow, God has the foresight to see what we need and he is already planning to prepare it for us. David is able to focus on this and take his eyes off the world around him. He's quick to remind us that this is no ordinary table. This is no ordinary meal he has here. He says, this meal happens in the presence of my enemies. Now, as I read this, I always thought, man, David, David has a lot of enemies. He's thinking about someone in particular. But as I've studied this week and I've really thought about who David's enemies were, is I think that David's enemies were maybe more spiritual than they were physical. Isn't it in the shadows when our enemies attack us the most? It's in the shadows when our enemies, the enemies of depression and sadness and loneliness come after us. It's in the hard times in our life when we just feel worthless. It's when I'm dealing with something I can't really talk about to someone that that sin that I think that I've stomped out of my life tries to creep its way back in. It's in the shadows of my life when I tend to respond with rage and anger and frustration to the people that I love the most. 
I think that David was talking about these spiritual enemies that were around him. And, and he sees all of this stuff surrounding him in the valley of the shadow of death. But he says, I choose to focus on what God put in front of me. I take my focus off of the surroundings. I take my focus off the problems around me. And I choose to focus on what God gives me. I find an oasis here that I have a refuge from the world around me. I have a refuge from the problems in, in my surroundings. And he finds new strength in what God gives him. See, when we're tired and we're hopeless, when we don't know what's going on, I promise you that if we will allow God to comfort us, he has a place where we can stop and we can find refuge. And what you're going through today was planned by God thousands of years ago. And he's been preparing to care for you in the midst of it for all of that time. It just takes us being willing to focus on him. That brings us to our second take-home truth. In worship, I see God's care for me. In worship, I see God's care for me. David continues on through the story. He says, God prepares a meal before me, and he says, he anoints my head with oil. That's not something we do here. Like if I walked up to you before church and I took some olive oil out and I poured it over your head, I, I don't think that you would respond very kindly. But in David's time, it was a pretty, um, pretty standard uh, uh, practice that they did. Now, looking at this, I think that it was left ambiguous about what the anointing with oil actually meant because there's about five different things that it could mean in here. See, David, David talks about... God being his shepherd. And so we're left with the analogy of a shepherd pouring oil over the head of his sheep. And at this time, this was an interesting practice. Sheep, of course, like all livestock, they attract all kinds of insects, including one in Israel, a little fly that would crawl up the ear canal and in, uh, the, get into the sheep's brain cavity and would slowly eat that sheep's brain away. That sheep would drive itself mad as something gnawed away at its brain. Does that kind of sound a little bit like worry to you? Like something gets in your brain and it just gnaws away at you until it drives you crazy. And the shepherd would take oil and he would pour it over the sheep's head and that would be a protective covering for the sheep. It would keep the flies from getting close and it would be protection. So maybe David's saying here, you anoint my head with oil, you protect me from things eating at me. David also obviously is talking about preparing a meal so it could be the cultural um, habit of anointing a traveler's head with oil before you fed them. Many of you know the story of Jesus in Last Supper before they ate, what did Jesus do for the disciples? He took them and he set them down and he washed their feet. That, that ritual or that habit of washing feet was usually accompanied by anointing someone's head with oil. So maybe David says here, you know what, in the presence of my enemies, God, you put me in a position of honor like a visitor at your table. Could be that David's looking back at his life and he remembers when he was only a shepherd boy and he was called home and he walked into his house to see the prophet of Israel, Samuel, before him. And he said, God has chosen you to be the next king of Israel. And he sat to him down and he uh, poured oil over his head, anointing him. And maybe David says, I remind myself that you have chosen me, that I am your chosen. And, and maybe my favorite, maybe my favorite of all the possibilities is this one. In Israel, before enemies would go to battle, they would anoint their shields with oil. It was considered an extra level of protection. I don't even know how it worked, but that's what they did. And when people prepared for spiritual battles, when they were struggling with something in the spiritual realm, the common practice was to anoint their head with oil in the same way that you anointed a shield to prepare them for battle. And there's a lot of possibilities that I probably couldn't even tell you, but here's what I can tell you. 
that it doesn't really matter why God is anointing David's head or why God anoints our head. It matters that God is the one doing it. It matters that God is the one caring. If you notice all of those examples, what it comes back down to is not so much that it's really um, any specific thing that's helping with. It comes back down to the fact of who is doing the anointing, that God is taking time before the meal that he has prepared for us. He is taking the time to care for our needs and prepare us for the next little bit of the journey. And so David pictures himself in the middle of this valley of the shadow of death with his enemy surrounding him, and there's this picture that is in stark contrast of a beautifully laid table full of food, everything that David could ever have, a, a chair just for David, and God tenderly and personally caring for David's needs. David looks at this and, and there's only one thing that he can describe, everything that he's experiencing. He says, my cup runs over. And we have this picture of a cup that is full of something and all you really need is a drink. But God, in his infinite love, in his infinite mercy, he pours it till it's full and then he keeps pouring and he keeps pouring and he keeps pouring. Not because it's actually doing more for you, it's because God loves to give you more than you need. Our, our last take-home truth here. Our last take-home truth is, in worship, I see my blessings overflowing. In worship, I see my blessings overflowing. Kyle Eidelman is a pastor of a large church in Kentucky, a church that runs about 10,000 people on Sunday morning. He's also written many books. We've actually used a couple of them in this church. Um, the most famous is called Not a Fan. We did one with the youth several years ago called AHA. And Kyle Eidelman is one of my favorite pastors ever because his heart for his people and for his church and for the work of God. I love him. And he revealed in a message in the middle of all this coronavirus, he revealed something about himself. He said, being in charge of such a large organization with so many things to manage and so many things to worry about, about, he found himself just kind of tied down with despair in the middle of this coronavirus. Buildings all over the place that filled with 10,000 people every week now sat empty. They weren't sure if they were going to be able to maintain their financial obligations. He, he worried about the future of the church. When will this be fixed? He worried about the safety of the people that were under his care. Kyle Eidelman says, but I'm a list maker. He loves to make lists. And he said, I have a list of blessings. And so in the midst of all of this panic in my life, I pulled out my list of blessings for this church and he said, I went down and remembered each one of them. He said, I remembered when we had extra hundreds of thousands of dollars that God provided us and we were able to give it to God's work in smaller churches. I remember that in the past year, we've had hundreds of people come to know Christ. I remember when this church was small and there were financial problems. I remember that God always provided and he went down the list remembering, here is the blessing, here is the blessing. And he came to a conclusion is that there are more blessings that he could ever count and God had always taken care of it. See, when we worship, when we truly worship God, we will start to count our blessings. What's that song? Count your many blessings one by one. We will start to count our blessings and we will notice that our blessings overflow. What if instead of focusing on the problem, if we took time to say, God, I'm struggling with this and I give it to you and now let me talk about all of the things that you have given me in my life. Let me talk about the table that you've set before me instead of the problems that surround me. I believe it would change our life and it would change our faith. You notice that when David starts talking about his cup, he's not talking about the shadows anymore. He's not talking about the problems of the world anymore. It's not because they're gone, it's because he's not focused on them anymore. See, David knew this, that the goodness that was before him was bigger than the problems that were around him. And for you and I, 
David was no more precious to God than you and I are. And the goodness that is before you and I with Jesus Christ is greater than any of the problems that surround us, any of the things that we go through. I think a lot of times we miss the goodness of God, not because it's not there, it's because we don't look at it. We don't look for it. We're too busy looking at our problems. We're looking at the possible outcomes. We're worried about how we're going to fix it. I'll be honest with you, sometimes for myself, I miss the goodness of God in my life because I'm looking at somebody else's table. But when we take time to focus on it, there is more than we could ever put. David puts it this way. He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I think all is the second most important word in this psalm. David says, every day. All includes today, it includes tomorrow, it includes the next day. All the days of my life, no matter what darkness I'm walking through, no matter what happens to me, goodness and mercy will be my constant companions. My favorite part about a marriage is the I do ceremony. It's like, do you guys know what you're getting into when you say I do? Like, that's, that's a big list of things that we have to go through. Uh, do you promise to love this person? And here's the good. And you're like, yeah, I can handle that. And here's the bad. And oh, <laughs> I don't know about that. But my favorite part of it is for better or for worse. Do you have a rugged determination to love this person on the good days when you're full of joy, when everything is going right? On the good days, will you love this person? I do. Does that rugged determination and love seep into the bad days? When there's hurt and there's pain and there's worry and there's anxiety? Is it the days when your six-month-old daughter will not go to sleep until 10.30 at night during the first week of school like she had caffeine or something? Yes, I will still choose to love my spouse on those days for better or for worse all of the days of our life. And God tells us here in the scripture, he says that he has that same commitment to us, that his love and his goodness, it comes on the good days, but it's also there on the bad days. Now God uses the metaphor of marriage many, many times in the scripture to refer to you and me. That, that, that's how he views us. He calls us the bride of Christ. That's you and I. And so we can assume that anything that we would promise to our spouses in our wedding days, God has promised to us. The good and the bad, for better or for worse, all the days of my life, goodness and mercy will follow me. And I love this. He doesn't say, I'll find the goodness and mercy. He, he doesn't say, goodness and mercy will show up. Goodness and mercy are following us. They're pursuing us. It doesn't matter where we're going to go, where we're going to take ourselves, they're going to be with us. I want to share with you a story of a lady named uh, Diane Dibler. She wrote a book called Evidence Not Seen, and it is a prolific book of a lady with faith. We got her picture coming up here. A lady of faith and what she experienced in the light, late 1930s. She was a missionary to the West Indies, on the Indian Ocean, these um, islands out there, and her and her husband felt called by God. I'm going to go to this area, and they reached Stone Age traps. We're talking about people that had never seen a white man. She tells stories about when she sees people, and they've got, you know, their ears are gay and all this weird stuff. She's like, I thought they were so weird. And her husband goes, they think you're just as funny looking at your dress and how you wear your hair and everything. And they went and they reached the Stone Age tribe serving God. And you would think God's blessings must have just been on them. But in the late 1930s, a little conflict called World War II started across the world. And it wasn't long before the island that she was on was taken over by the Japanese, occupied by the Japanese. The Japanese, we tend to focus on the Nazis in World War II, but the Japanese were just as bad, if not worse, in the way that they treated their captors. The Japanese took over her island, and it wasn't long before her and her husband were separated as her husband went to a male prison camp and she went to a female prison camp. 
The last time she ever saw her husband was as he climbed into the back of a truck to be taken to a new prison camp. He died there. And she tells the stories of what she endured under the harshness of the Japanese. It wasn't very long after she got there that they got a new commander, Mr. Yamaji, she called him. Mr. Yamaji had been sent to her camp because of the last prison camp he was at. He flew into a fit of rage and beat someone literally to death. And this is her new camp commander. He exhibited those same problems with her and with all of the other women in the camp, several thousand of them. The slightest problem that he found in them, he would fly into a rage and beat them savagely. She'd been there about two years when she received the news that her husband had passed away from sickness in the male prison camp. And of course, in this community of people, many of them missionaries, they would come and support her. And it wasn't very long until she was called to Mr. Yamaji's office. Mr. Yamaji pulled her in there. He knew that she was a leader among the women there. And he looked at her and he said, what you're experiencing now, Japanese soldiers' wives experience at home. He said, you need to suck it up. You need to get through it. And you need to put on a good face because these other women rely on you. No pity in his voice. And she said, Mr. Yamaji, can I, can I talk to you for a second? I said, sure, say what you got to say. She said, Mr. Yamaji, I will get through this. I, I will be okay because even though I'm hurting, I know this man named Jesus. And he died on a cross for my sins, and he is my comfort, and he is my savior. And there she witnessed to her captor, and she said, and this man Jesus, he teaches me to love my enemies. And because he loves you, I love you, no matter how you treat us. Mr. Yamaji, this man who beat people savagely, who flew into fits of anger, he just broke down crying. Didn't say a word, he broke down crying to the point where he had to leave the room, and that was the last that she had heard of it. Her story only gets worse from there. In this prison camp, she was with these other women, and soon the Japanese secret police came, and they called her by name. They pulled her down to headquarters, and they put her on death row, is what they called it. This was the place where they interrogated people who they thought were spies. And about once a day, for two to four hours, she was drugged into a room and savagely tortured as they tried to make her admit she was sending secret messages to the Allied forces. She wasn't. She had no way to do that. She was in a prison camp, but they were convinced that she did. And after about six months of being tortured every day, they pulled her into the room. And this day, they didn't beat her. And this day, they didn't torture her. This day, they didn't say anything to her except, we've proven our case against you. You are an American spy. And do you know what the penalty for being a spy is? The penalty was death by beheading. And they drug her back to her cell and closed the door. And from that day forward, they never come to get her anymore. As she sat there awaiting her death, she could have felt forgotten. But you know where she found her peace and her oasis in? In reciting scripture she had memorized from birth, or from a young age, and in worshiping. As you listen to her story and read her book, every other sentence is, I decided to sing this song. I decided to worship. I decided to repeat this scripture to myself over and over and over again. And surrounded by her enemies, awaiting her death in a prison camp in an island in the Pacific Ocean with her husband died, she found a refuge and an oasis in worshiping God. One day, this is my favorite part of the story, one day she was able to look out a little window and she saw a lady outside in the camp and this lady kept kind of scooting over closer to the fence and she said, she's going out there to meet someone. And for someone who was stuck in a prison cell, this was the most dramatic thing she had seen. It was like watching television for her. Is she going to make it without getting caught? And she watched the lady walk over to the fence with no guards looking, stick her hand through and a hand appeared out of the jungle and handed her a small cluster of bananas. 
Ms. Dobler says, in that moment, there's nothing more that I wanted than one of those bananas. And so she did what everybody does. She took it to God, and she said, God, I want a banana. That lady out there, she has nine. I want one. Can you get me one banana into this jail cell, please? And she prayed, and she begged, God, just one banana. See, she hadn't had anything to eat in six months except for rice that was filled with maggots and rocks and not enough to keep her healthy. She wanted a banana so badly, and as she quit praying, she took her eyes off of God, and she put them on the problem. She said, who's going to bring me a banana? How do I get a banana in this place? And she thought about the guard and said, he wouldn't bring it to me. He would probably be executed for giving me something. She thought about those who had tortured her. She said, I'm not about to ask them for a banana. They'll probably beat me just for asking. And she realized that in this camp, surrounded by her enemies, surrounded by barbed wire and in this cell, it was literally impossible for a single banana to make its way through. Her words, not mine. She said, it was more likely that the moon would fall out of the sky than a banana make it into my jail cell. She was very upset. This is when she sunk into despair more than she ever had. It was a few days later when somebody opened her jail cell, and it was Mr. Yamaji, the prison camp commander she had witnessed to nearly a year earlier. Hadn't seen or heard anything from him since. And, of course, he was very callous. He just looked at her and he said, You're not well, are you? She said, No, sir, I'm not. I've got vitamin deficiency. She had dysentery. She had suffered from malaria. She was probably going to die of her sickness. He just looked at her up and down one time and said, I'm going back to camp now, and walked away. What a weird meeting, right, that he would track her down just to say, you're not doing well. But just about 10 minutes after that, she heard the guards coming again. They opened the door, and they threw in a cluster of bananas. Cluster of bananas right there for her. And they said, these are from Mr. Yamaji, somebody who was miles away, who shouldn't have been thinking of her, but he thought, I need to check on her and bring her food. And she said, in that moment, I remembered a bit of Scripture. And I remembered who God is. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes, he leads me, let's see, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me down the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He prepares for me a table in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil, and my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy, the goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in his house forever. She remembered that, and she worshiped God, and she thanked him, and she climbed over there to count the bananas. I'm not talking about a cluster of bananas that you buy at Walmart. She counted out 92 bananas, and she went to God and worshiped. She said, God, I asked for one, and it was an impossible task to get one, and you gave me 92 times the amount that I asked for. And in that moment, she heard the small, still voice echo back to her. She said, this is what God said to her. That's what I like to do, the exceedingly abundant. And there in the presence of her enemies, she had a feast. See, God loves to do this exceedingly abundant for us, Brother Danny. It's not what he does, it's who he is, that he cares for us in the midst of all situations and that he delights and he desires and he wants to give us more than we could ever ask for. And in the shadows that we walk through and in the deserts, 
There may be times when we just need to remember the times that God has done the exceedingly abundant for us in the past. This is our response time. Please don't just stand and sing. Just be a placeholder until we can enter out, enter or leave the sanctuary. This is our time for us to take what we learned today and apply it to ourselves. And maybe for you that looks like I just need to pray and focus on God and thank Him for the blessings that I have at your seat. If you're like me, God requires from me some kind of a physical movement for me to feel like I've really surrendered to Him. So this altar is available for you to come pray with. And if you would like for me to pray with you, I would love to. But leave here differently today, remembering the blessings of God and His exceeding abundance.